Welcome to the Grow Bowl with Disability podcast, brought to you by Ferros Care, a podcast dedicated to smashing stereotypes and talking about the things people with disability care about most to help us live bolder, healthier, better connected lives. I'm journalist Pete Timms. And I'm Tristan Peters. I work for Disability Service Directory Clickability and I'm a wheelchair user living with spinal muscular atrophy. Today's episode of Grow Bold with Disability is Growing Bold and Inclusivity. Our guest is disability rights firebrand Natalie Wade, founder and principal lawyer at Equality Lawyers in Adelaide, and she is a wheelchair user. In this episode, we'll find out about Nat's disability and how she found a love of law and how her law firm is ensuring equality and promoting disability rights all over Australia. Nat, welcome to Grow Bold with Disability. Thank you so much for having me. So now, as Pete said, you are a wheelchair user. Can you tell us a little bit about your disability and how it affects you? So I have been in a wheelchair all my life. Um, I was born with a congenital muscular myopathy, which just means that I have very weak muscles in my arms and my legs and my spine. You know, I think that's just a bit. And so I don't walk at all, so I use a wheelchair to get around yeah, to, to get to work, to get around home, to, to go everywhere. I'm either in bed or in my chair. So how is that different to muscular dystrophy? That's a really good question. Um, it's probably not a whole lot different other than um, no one really knows how mine will play out. So I have an undiagnosed uh, muscular myopathy, which is, I think, a, just a broader diagnostic group, but it's very similar in manifestation. So I have the floppy limbs. I wear a bike hat at night to sleep on. I um, I dread the winter and if I get a cold, I go to hospital and it's all pretty much the same as far as I can tell. Yeah. And then in terms of growing up, would you call yours a typical education? Was it much different to everyone else's? Yeah, so I um, attended mainstream school, as they call it, and my experience of mainstream schooling was uh, inter- integration. So, so I was in a classroom with my non-disabled peers, um, and that was the case from reception through year 12, um, definitely acknowledging that there are mainstream schools that have disability units and specialist streams, but I which is thrown into the classroom and uh, told to participate, which I did. Um, and, and that was really great. But it certainly um, was a, a product of its time. So I was the only um, person with a physical disability at my school. Um, and when my parents went to enrol me in my um, primary school education, uh, it, at the school that my sister attended, um, who is not disabled, um, they were required to have me undergo a psychological assessment oh, to goodness. see to see if I had an intellectual disability as well as a physical disability, even though I had no indicators that I had any uh, intellectual impairment at the time. But it was merely the fact that I used a wheelchair or had a physical disability that the school... Uh, would not accept my enrolment without that further testing. 
Now, we're not talking like the 1940s here. When was this? This was the 90s, wasn't it? Yeah, this was the 90s. Spot on. So I uh, started school in 1995. What? what, yeah. what? I, I don't know. I just can't get my head around the, this style of treatment. Was that? How, how did you feel about all that? I was pretty oblivious. So five-year-old Nat was pretty unaware that it was remotely strange. Um uh, and my parents, you know, when I say to them now, like, you know, me, 31-year-old disability rights lawyer, says, oh, my God, I can't believe you <laughs> let that happen. What were you thinking? They, they often say there was, there was just no other way around it. It was either that I undertook the assessments and they knew that there would be no issues with the results. It was simply a checkbox um, issue, or I would be attending the local special school. And my parents had a, a, a strange but very understandable fixation with me going to the same school as my sister. So um, that was really their motivator. But I think they were less concerned about, you know, mainstream versus, versus special schooling, and they were very keen to do one pick-up and drop-off. <laughs> of course, I understand that as a parent. <laughs> uh, yeah, I also find that I was also the only wheelchair user at my school. In a strange way, I found it oddly empowering um, because it was so I was just thrown in and, and doing everything. Um, was it the same for yourself? You just got on with it? Yeah, yeah. So at the time, I thought, this is so great and this is my preferred uh, way to be disabled is to be the only one. It's a real novelty to your peers and you get to um, inform their lived experience and disability. So you're the one that gets to tell them because at that time and arguably still now, you know, it's not in mainstream media, it's not um, in their world other than their interactions with you. And so you have this incredible power, but also responsibility to inform how they perceive disability. That that was generally how I felt about it until probably my later adolescence, so towards the end of schooling and and certainly leading up to university, that I, I had no concept of what people who were like me were like. And I didn't know what they were doing. I didn't know if they were having similar lives like me. I didn't know if they were super cool or if they were total losers. I had no <laughs> idea what was going on. And that created its own sense of very quiet um, isolation, I think. So on that note, had you, do you wish you had gone not to a special school but to a school that was a bit more specialised towards people and had a few more people with disability at the school? No, I probably wish that I had a grown up in a time where um, mainstream schooling accepted more enrolments of mm. people with disabilities. So I think now, judging by what my... Um, nieces and nephews uh, see at their schooling ages, they're very little, um, that classrooms are, are full with disability these days, which is so magical to see. And I think that I would have preferred to have grown up in, in that era because that would be so fun. <laughs> 
Agrees. And so what was uh, the plan upon leaving school? What what sort of job prospects were there? Yeah, so pretty much exactly what you see me doing now is what the plan was. I'm a fantastic Virgo and fantastic planner, um, and, and this was the plan. So I um, went to Adelaide Law School at the University of Adelaide. Um, I started in 2008. Um, and so straight out of year 12, went straight to uni, didn't have a gap year, um, and did law for five years. And then I became a lawyer and I'm still here now. <laughs> so, so how did you find the university? You were getting older. You could see the differences in things like wheelchair accessibility and all those things and um, the university adapting to people with disability. Did you become a bit of an advocate to push that? Because that was the era when it was sort of becoming a little bit more out in the open and you could raise your voice a bit more. Yes, definitely. So I love the synergy that I started law school the year that Australia ratified the Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities. Um, But it's definitely the time, that five years at law school, that I really cut my teeth as a disability advocate. So I... At school, I guess your parents and your teachers and and your peers as well do a lot of your advocacy for you. Um, And at uni, I was a bit more responsible for what was going on around me. And I also was at the brilliant age that is young adolescents to not put up with it. Um, And so we did some amazing things at uni around systemic reform that makes um, the education experience more accessible and inclusive for people with disabilities and those reforms still exist today. So they're everything from um, lift buttons being at the appropriate height for a wheelchair user, a wheelchair user that can't lift their arms, I hesitate to write, Um, (laughs) but also um, the way that exam timetables are structured so that uh, you can um, let the university know what you need for exams and then that remains so for the duration of your degree. So when I went to university, you used to have to tell them every semester like what you needed, um, both for exams but also for the courses that you're enrolled in. Um, and I said in semester one, 2008, that's a lot of semesters in five years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I plan to be this disabled the whole time. Um, so can we maybe work that out? And we did. And, and now that's the thing, which is really great and hopefully makes it a lot easier for other students. This is just taking me back to my own uni days. Now it's I remember, you know, some of the biggest challenges I had was around the fatigue in those exam blocks and needing a little bit more time. And I suppose the university that they just did not know about these these sorts of requirements and changes and being flexible and that sort of thing. Was it a hard conversation to have with university administratives and, and all those sorts of types, or was it a pretty easy conversation to have? I think it was a very uh, educational conversation. I don't know that it was necessarily uh, easy or hard, but it certainly was labouring to walk them through what I needed, how I needed it. So a lot of my um, adjustments that are required are physical stuff, so having a desk at the right height or having doorways Mm -hmm. you can fit through. Mm -hmm. Um, I went to my first exam uh, to the 
cultural reference going, and it turned out that I was a fire hazard and I shouldn't have been there at all. Um, <laughs> and and so just you know, there, there's all these physical barriers as you both know um, in in any environment, and so it's a matter of tackling those. But but really walking the university staff through what those barriers are and why they need to be broken down for me to participate effectively. I think over the five years, I got a lot more articulate in the way that I would put that um, and a lot less apologetic, I think it would be fair to say. (laughs) Yeah. How open were the university to making these changes? Oh, it's super open. So they, yeah, they they were really, um, they were great about it. They had some... Uh, fantastic ally-focused people in the disability services uh, office, which is responsible for ensuring that students with disabilities are able to access um, university programs. And um, they they were really great in helping me to bring my needs to the attention of, of the relevant people. Now, did you notice by the time you got into the fifth year, was there more people with disability coming through in first years? No. Oh. <laughs> yeah, no. So I went through five years without any other person with a disability. Wow. So if you do the maths, so, I, so by 2012, I had been in education for 18 years. So mm. right? No. Yeah, yeah, 18 years. Um, and I still, at that time, was the only person with a physical disability wow. in in my space. Yeah. So two decades worth of reform needed. <laughs> and and Adelaide Uni's pretty big uni too. <laughs> yeah. Did this did this just further entrench that feeling of isolation? Did it, I suppose it's such a motivating factor in, in what you've gone and done since. Yeah. So having sort of left school and um, heading off to university, I had more opportunities, as most young people do, to um, mix in different circles outside of my immediate local community. Mm. And so I um, had at that point during my time at university um, become more and more involved in disability advocacy and that brought me in touch with more and more people with disabilities, in particular young people. And so whilst... That they weren't at law school with me. They were certainly in my world, and and that that was really wonderful, and and made me a lot more aware of many of the issues that I now work on all day every day. Now, after you left uni, graduated, you had a few jobs within the law legal industry. Then you started your own firm. What inspired you to open your own firm? And tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, so um, Equality Lawyers is is the firm, and we're a boutique law firm for people with disabilities and their families. I Before I opened EQL, as we affectionately call it, um, I was a state government solicitor, which was really great for all sorts of different reasons, um, and I got some really amazing opportunities and, and definitely learned my craft at, at, in state government. But uh, in 2018, I did a government, uh, I I had a government scholarship to do a uh, leadership course. And so I sat in a cohort of 44 other 
leaders from South Australia that travelled around the state throughout 12 months learning all things leadership, how to be a leader, how to do leader things. And throughout the 12 months, I was routinely annoyed um, and surprised, and then also not surprised, at the lack of inclusion and representation of people with disabilities throughout our communities. And so at the end of that course, I said very jokingly, I was joking, that maybe (laughs) it was time for me to leave my state government job and take my lawyer skills back to community and sort out why we, people with disabilities, weren't featuring more heavily in spaces within our community. So then I went back to my cushy government job and um, thought, oh, that, that, was, that was funny to say. Uh, but anyway, by January 2019, I thought, no, really, I, I really should go. And I said to um, my husband, I'm going to do this. I'm going to quit my six-figure paying job and hopefully it works. <laughs> and, um, Good on and, you. Yeah, and, and so that, was, that feels like a while ago now, but it wasn't really. It was in... Uh, July 2019, Equality Lawyer started. And the purpose of it really is to have private disabled lawyers for disabled people. Amazing. Perfect. I mean, it's obviously been a success. What what sort of cases uh, do you work on day to day? Yeah, so we focus on the everyday legal issues that face people with disabilities. So they are commonly discrimination matters, so usually in the space of education or work. Um, but we also see a bit of goods and services like airlines and cafes and bits and that, but predominantly, as you would expect, work and education are two really big areas for discri- discrimination. Um, we also do a little bit of NDIS reviews and appeals, but not as much as you would think. Um, the NDIS reviews and appeals space is really well funded through um, the legal aid commissions throughout Australia. So um, we send a lot of of that work to them, which is um, really great. Uh, But we also do a lot of guardianship and administration work. So I don't know if you you guys have heard of that, but that's where um, a person is not able to make their own legal decisions. And that disproportionately impacts people with intellectual disabilities and cognitive impairments. Um, so we do quite a bit of that work. Centrelink, so social security uh, law, we do a bit of that. Um, but then in the last year or so in South Australia, almost a year ago now, um, we had the death of Anne-Marie Smith, mm. which was really devastating for our local disability community, but also across Australia. And that saw a lot of families and people with disabilities sort of turn around and go, well, how do we be safe? And and what does safe look like in our future? And so we've been doing a lot of work around planning safe futures for people with disabilities. And, and from a legal perspective, that looks like wills and estates. So making sure that people have the right wills and the right estate plans in place that not only keep them safe but promote a good 
um, and productive life for the person with a disability. What have been some of the more disturbing trends that you're seeing coming over your desk, sort of things that are really going, well, this is not right and it's happening way too much? Yeah, so we, I, I saw um, some worrying trends and trends is a great thing to focus on because people often ask me, oh, can you tell us about a case? And I'm like, oh, really can't tell you about a case, but, but I can <laughs> definitely tell you about trends and, and I think it's really valuable for people to know. So um, we, we've been seeing a lot of um, people with intellectual disabilities and cognitive impairments have their uh, decision-making abilities taken away from them. Um, but it's been a bit of a worry because we haven't been seeing um, as much support put in place to assist that person to exercise their decision-making ability in a in a different way to what a neurotypical, run-of-the-mill, mm-hmm. white, middle-class male yeah. would do. And so that's been a, a, a real worry because it's very serious to remove the right of a person to make their own decisions. So maybe a decision about where they live, how they manage their money, uh, what they do for work. So it's very, very serious. So that, that's a bit of a worry. We also have seen, um, as, as I mentioned, an increase in people wanting to plan safe futures. But also in that a lot of conversations about what does the everyday life for a person with a disability look like and what are their legal rights to ensuring that life is a reality. So a lot of those conversations honestly revolve around work. So what are people's rights to work, what what is their legal position with respect to making sure that they get the best outcomes that they can rather than, you know, just go into a day options program, staying there forever, that's all they do. And, and I think that families and people with disabilities are really interested to know their rights in that space. Mm. So they should. Mm. And in terms of um, the things that need to change then in society to drive inclusivity, you've spoken a bit about, um, you know, legal rights and ensuring that people know what they're entitled to. Is there, is there something more broad that we need to do to, to ensure that we are driving towards that inclusivity? Yeah, so I think that's it. there's things that, um, you know, governments and lawmakers can do. Then there's things that policymakers and civil society, so, um, you know, uh, representative organisations can do. And then there's what everyone can do. And it's probably worthwhile for your listeners focusing on the part that everyone can do. And so I, I think often people hear about inclusion or, or the rights of people with disabilities and think, Oh my gosh, that is that is an issue way bigger than me. That is mm-hmm. for government. That is for you know the peak organisations. That's that's for someone who's definitely not me. Or, um, but there really is a lot that everyday Australians can do to promote inclusion and affect real change for people with disabilities. So a couple of really easy examples are things like. If you're a business, 
and you have a website, making sure your website is accessible for people with disabilities. Um, if you have a building, so if you're in a cafe or a restaurant, making sure you have a ramp for wheelchair users, but also mm. making sure that you're aware that people with uh, vision impairments use guide dogs and they're allowed in your premises. Making sure that you support and welcome people with disabilities into your local sporting club, your local community activities. If you have children at school and you're in some sort of parent network, making sure that parents with disabilities are a part of your conversations or parents of children with disabilities are being heard. So we all have something that we can really do in our everyday circle of influence that could lift up and promote the rights of people with disabilities. Yeah, it's from little things really, isn't it? Yeah, most definitely. So Nat, as you know, this podcast is called Grow Bold with Disability. Uh, So what does living a bold life mean to you? For me, living bold or growing bold is about being authentic to you, about doing what you believe is good work or having a good life and doing that absolutely brilliantly. Fantastic. Short and to the point. I like it. You must be a lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Nat, thank you so much for joining us here today on the Grow Bowl with Disability podcast brought to you by Ferros Care. And our listeners can find out more about Natalie and her amazing firm, Quality Lawyers, in the links provided in today's show notes. Nat, thanks again for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This podcast is brought to you by Ferros Care, an NDIS partner delivering local area coordination services in Queensland, South Australia and the Australian Capital Territory. Ferros Care is a people care organisation committed to helping people live bolder lives. We call it Growing Bold. And for over 30 years, Ferros has been making it real for both older Australians and those living with disability. To find out more, head to ferroscare.com.au.